God, we just pray right now together, um, just with one heart, uh, with one spirit, and we ask that you would manifest your Father's love over us. God, we thank you that it's very specific. We thank you that it's very powerful. We thank you that it's life-changing to experience the true love of a father, and not just any father, but our heavenly father, the love that is perfect, unconditional, unending, unwavering. God, we just we thank you for it, and we just pray that we would go into a deeper revelation of that tonight. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, I want you guys to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. As Rona shared, my name is Erin, and I am the executive um, director of Emmaus. And I'm so excited to be here with you guys tonight, especially at Seoul National. Um, You know, you guys have a very uh, specific calling on your life in particular. And I think this campus is very mm, set apart for God's work. And I want you guys to really acknowledge that. I, I know some of you guys may not actually be a part of uh, SNU um, as a university. You might be attending another campus at another place. But this group together, whatever college campus is being represented here, I want you to know that there's um, really a great purpose that God has for you guys. And, um, yeah, because of it, I'm just, I'm really glad to be here tonight. I'm really honored um, to travel through the woods of this campus. <laughs> takes forever to get here, but you're worth it. You are worth it. All right, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 32. And we're going to be reading from a very famous passage uh, in Scripture. Uh, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. So what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, read one verse, and I'll have you guys read the following, and we'll just go back and forth together. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, and if you guys have a different version of the Bible, it's all good. Just read your version, whatever you're comfortable with. Are you guys ready? Okay, here we go. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son, was dead, 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they have began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost, and is found. Amen. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I love stories. Like, I love a good story. Uh, I enjoy a lot of fictional books. My husband can't stand fiction. He's all about the nonfiction, but, you know, I enjoy nonfiction too, but I love fiction. I love a well-written story. Um, I love adventure. And one of my favorite ways to engage in a story is having someone tell it. Just personally, not just reading it, but just having someone share their story, tell a story. You know, one thing about Jesus that's so incredible was I think he was the best storyteller. And the way that he ministered to the people when he was on earth was many times he used what's called parables, which is pretty much just a story. And you have to, you know, give Jesus some credit because his storytelling had to be on point because there was multitudes of people that would follow him wherever he went. That means he was a pretty good storyteller, all right? I know for me, sometimes when it's time to eat and it's time to, like, sit and, you know, grab a meal, I like to kind of squeeze my way near someone that's a good storyteller because as I eat, I get a little bit of entertainment, you know? I'm willing to walk, you know, down the table, whatever, but these people were willing to walk miles and miles without, you know, proper footwear or without a proper meal to hear Jesus tell these incredible stories, And the thing about stories is you have to pay close attention because often in stories, all the details matter. If you're a good storyteller, you don't just say empty words. Every word counts. Every phrase counts. The order of the phrasing counts. It's just a good story has that much impact and substance to it. Especially when it comes to Jesus and parables, all of the stories that he told had a deeper meaning, it had a deeper principle, it had a truth that he was trying to reveal in story form. So here, he's telling a very, very, very popular story to us now, but it's going to be the first time that these people hear this story. And I want to give you guys a little bit of context, because if you don't understand the audience, if you don't understand the culture, if you don't understand the time and the day, we're going to miss out on a lot of the important details of this particular story. If you just read it like we did, you can still get a good story. That's awesome. You know, great. The son came back. They killed a fattened calf. Wow. I don't know how to really relate to that. Maybe a big steak or, you know, there's only certain things that we can relate to when we read it like this. But as we understand the culture, as we understand what Jesus is actually trying to point out as a storyteller, we get a lot more of what he's trying to say to the people. First off, what you need to know is this story was told in response to a comment. If you look in the first part of um, Luke chapter 15, turn with me to verses 1 to 2. We get a picture of who he was speaking to. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners. Everybody say tax collectors and sinners 
were all drawing near to him, him referring to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, everybody say Pharisees and scribes, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. (gasps) Oh my gosh. How scandalous. Jesus. This is Jesus. He's this rabbi, well-respected. And in Jewish culture, as this honored man, you should have nothing to do with sinners. And tax collectors may seem like a random occupation. No, it's not just this one evil occupation. But tax collectors was considered to be very um, corrupt people. In order to be a tax collector, you were pretty much a corrupt person. And you, what you did was you basically stole money. It's like compared to this day's, um, what would you call them? Politicians, that's jacked up. <laughs> All right, SNU, I see you. <laughs> um, not so much politicians, but like, I guess people that just, yeah, not loan sharks, but people that go around, they pretty much just take your money. It's like more than thieves. I'm having a really hard time right now. It's like if you go in the hood, some of the, okay, I don't know if you guys know what that means, but in poor neighborhoods in the United States of America, there are sections where there are gangs that have ownership. And basically, these gangs, even though they don't own the property, they own the property. And if you own a restaurant, you get a you have to give a percentage of your, um, you know, your income or your profit. (laughs) It's like I come to SNU, also my IQ drops to like, like two. Woo! All right, Lord, spirit of intelligence, come upon me. All right. So you give a a percentage of your profit to these gang members because it's, you know, they say that they claim, they claim this area and in response, they offer protection, whatever. Tax collectors are kind of similar to that. They don't deserve it, but they take it. All right. They don't deserve it, but they take your money. So these were like considered the lowest of the low. That occupation was despised. It was like looked upon with disgust. Maybe the modern day politician, I guess, but like no respect for the tax collector. And sinners, obviously, these are people that did not grow up in Judaic tradition. They, they were not the chosen people. You know, these were people that were considered to be distant and, and have done disgusting and wrong things. So all these bad people are drawing near to Jesus and Jesus is not telling them to go away. He's inviting them in. And there's these tax collectors and sinners drawing close. And then you have the Pharisees and the scribes who can't stand Jesus. Now, what they represent are people of the law. These are supposed to be like good people. They know Jewish tradition. They follow every commandment of God. They were considered in that area to be very holy and righteous. And they're looking at Jesus and they're like, whoa, what's he doing? And as they see him interacting with these tax collectors and sinners, they say, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is not a statement. This is an accusation. Okay, this is an accusation towards Jesus. Now, in response, Jesus tells three parables. He hears that comment. He's like, well, I love it. He's just, and then he told them this parable. You know, like he overheard their comments. And he says three parables that have to do with losing something. The first is a lost sheep. A shepherd loses a sheep. He leaves 99 of his sheep to go find that one. The second story is of a woman who loses a coin and she, you know, cleans the house all night to find that one coin. And both of these stories end in a celebration. When the sheep was found, celebration. When the coin was found, celebration. And the third story that was told was the one that we just read. 
Okay, so you have to understand that he's telling the story in response to the Pharisee and the scribes and in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. This is important. Okay, so this is the audience. There's a trifold, trifold. There's a twofold audience that's going on. I promise I'm smart. I promise. <laughs> okay, so knowing that, we're going to break down this story. And I want you guys to understand storytelling. When someone tells a story for the purpose of revealing something, like a principle or a truth, even though that you can't relate exactly to the story, you have to pay attention to the emotions and what's emphasized. So we're going to go over that and talk about the emotions and talk about what's emphasized in the story. And I want you to follow along with me. And if you can relate to any of these things, I want you to allow the word of God to begin to really speak to you. So the first scene of this story, remember this is a fictional story, starts with a father who has two sons. And the younger son says to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Give me the share of property. Basically, what this homeboy is talking about is give me the inheritance. Okay? you got to understand how insane that is. Because number one, you're not supposed to touch the inheritance until your father dies. So this is not just, hey, dad, give me some money. And then he goes and squanders it. No, he goes up to his father who is alive and pretty much looks him in the face and says, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance. This statement alone, as a listener who is probably a, a Pharisee or a scribe, is shocking. They probably heard this and was like, <gasps> how dare he, this evil son, this terrible son, the property and the possessions that this younger son demands. First of all, he's the younger son. In Jewish tradition, the older son gets twice as much. So what this younger son gets is pretty much one-third. Okay, one third of his father's property. That's what he's asking for. And he's, no, no, no. He's not asking for it. Let me preface this. He's demanding it. He says, Father, give me. He doesn't say, Father, will you give me? He says, Father, give me. This is an obnoxious, disrespectful son. You guys have to get that. It's, it's crazy what he's doing. It's unheard of. In fact, it's so bad that the father has every right to disown his son right then and there. So the son disrespects his father, treats him with contempt that's unfathomable, and you can imagine the Pharisees and the scribes just shaking their head, listening to the story. And the tax collectors and the sinners going, hmm. <laughs> Maybe some of them can actually relate to that, you know, like, hmm. Maybe some of them were disturbed, but maybe some of them related. Remember, there's two audiences going on at this time. But it's, it's, it's crazy that he asks his father of this. If you look at the end of verse 12, it says, he divided his property between them, he being the father. The father divided his property between the two brothers. Okay, guys. First of all, this obnoxious son goes up to the father, says, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my property. Give me my inheritance. That's crazy. The second thing that's crazy is that the father actually gave it to him. This is a father that has not died yet. He is alive. He needs this property. He needs it for his own well-being, his own welfare. Okay, he needs to survive too. But he doesn't say, son, get out of my face. I disown you. Son, get, you know, leave me. I want nothing to do with you. He actually gives the son what he, what he demands. It's very interesting. This is very different than what's expected. Not only does the father 
give this son, you know, his inheritance, okay, he just, he concedes, but verse 13, it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. Okay, what this verse is saying is he pretty much sold his property, collected the money, and was getting ready to bounce. Not only did the dad give him, all right, here, let me draw out this land, this much is yours, but he lets the son sell that land. It no longer belongs to the family anymore. It's like a complete cutting off. When he sold his inheritance, when he sold the property, when he sold the possessions, this was the ultimate decision to completely disconnect from the family. He's saying, the the younger son was saying, I want nothing to do with you or my brother anymore. It's done. It's over. Remember, there's two audiences happening at the same time. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're hearing this introduction to this story, and they're disgusted. They know that what this son has done is evil in the sight of God. Utter rebellion. And then there's the tax collectors and sinners who many of them might relate to the falling short or to the making the mistake in arrogance as big as asking someone for an inheritance. Okay. Verse 13 to verse 14. Why don't you guys look with me? Verse 13 to verse 14. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, we'll stop there. Verse 13. Far country pretty much indicates that this guy left God's land. This land where all the Jewish people lived, he left. He went to the far country, meaning he went into pretty much like a pagan country. All right? Pagan land where there would be no worship of God, where there would be no Jewish people looking at him, judging him, you know, telling him that he can't do that. He wanted complete freedom, not just from his family, but from his religion, from his culture, and from God. He wanted nothing to do with it. He wanted to live the wild life without anybody telling him that what he's doing is wrong. Can anybody relate? Reckless living, it refers to his involvement with prostitutes. We find that out later on by his older brother. That's intense. You know, he didn't just drink, gamble. He just spent a lot of his money hooking up with prostitutes. Now, I think this is a very interesting fact. Some of us may not relate to the hooking up of prostitutes, okay? But I want, you to, I want you to understand what prostitutes actually signifies. You see, when scripture talks to us about our relationship with God, it often refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And we're invited into this incredible, most intimate relationship with God. When you hear the word prostitute, you think of the most counterfeit and cheap version of that intimacy. You see, sex is supposed to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Prostitution is enjoyed without any commitment. It's counterfeit. It does not go as deep. It's a cheap bootleg, booty version of the intimacy. So him going to prostitutes is like him choosing the counterfeit. Listen, let me be real here. I can relate to this very, very much. I love this story because I am the prodigal son. And at times I'm actually the older brother, which I'll get to. But for most of my life, I was not the older brother. I, I left. You know, when I was, I got saved when I was 12. But by the time I got to college, 
I was able to go to a school that was about three, four hours away from my home. So to me, it was like the far country. You know what I'm saying? Freedom. And I specifically chose a college that would be far enough. Specifically. I was like, I don't want to have to live at home. I did not want to commute. I did not want to be anywhere near my parents. I wanted to be free. I didn't want somebody spying on me. I didn't want someone telling me what to do. You know, I was a, a daughter. I wasn't a PK, a pastor's kid, but my father was an elder. So everybody in the Korean church, you know, like, they all parented me or tried to parent me, right? So everybody had something about what I was wearing. They had something to say about who I was hanging out with. I couldn't stand it. And so I was so excited to be free. And so I went to the far country called Binghamton University. (laughs) And here in Binghamton, I pretty much did anything and everything that I ever wanted to do. And there was no church member looking down. You know, there was no deacon or, or pastor or, or, you know, people of God that, that knew my relationship with God to hold me accountable. I specifically withheld my stance on God from my friends because I did not want them to hold me accountable to that. And so I straight up lived like, like I didn't even know Christ. I mean, I dabbled in it in high school. I got involved in all sorts of things in high school. But in college, it's when I like, it was the far country. All right? the far country for me. I specifically left the protection of God, the grace of God, the community of God in order to enjoy what I couldn't enjoy. You know, when you're with church community, that's why some people don't want to go to church because if you're in church, then, you know, people are going to ask you what you did, you know, the night before. And you don't want anybody asking you what you did the night before. (laughs) You don't want to answer those questions so you don't go to church. I did not go to church When I was in college, I was like this prodigal son. In my arrogance, in my desire to live the way that I wanted to live, I I specifically took steps to separate myself from the community of God, from my relationship with God, in order to pursue this wild lifestyle. Some of you guys may not have that severe of a testimony. I mean, when I say wild, you're probably like, well, what'd she do? You know, she's a pastor now, so she can have done that much. I did a lot. I did a lot. Okay. You know, my husband, he never smoked a cigarette. He got drunk, I think, once in his life. He's a good man. He's a good man. He still needed Jesus, though. He still needed Jesus. But me, I mean, I smoked everything you can smoke. And then snorted what you can snort and then took a pill and what you could take a pill. You know, like I did all sorts of drugs when I was a sophomore in high school, not in high school, when I was sophomore, when I was a sophomore in high school, it's the first time I stole. But when I was a sophomore in college, it's the first time I got arrested. No, I got arrested when I was a sophomore in high school, but they couldn't let me go because they didn't let me leave the store. So they couldn't convict me of stealing. They just found it in my bag. Anyway, that was their mistake. Um... So I didn't learn my lesson. I was like, yippee. And then sophomore year of college, I mean, I got arrested for stealing. So when I say I made mistakes, when I said I, I lived the life that I wanted to live, I, I really mean it. And some of you guys may have not gone that far, but I think there's a part of us where we try to separate ourselves from the community of God, where we willingly choose to separate ourselves from relating to God's people or relating to God himself because we want to do what we want to do. So at this point, you can probably imagine the Pharisees and the scribes, again, they're listening to the story and they're like, this son is terrible. You you have to understand, to them, we're talking about a, 
a, a really disgusting story of a son in utter rebellion. When we read it, it's like, oh, yeah, the prodigal son. But to them, when they were listening to it, it was like the heavy of the heavy sins. Like this is the shock, the horror. It was deep. It was deep. It's like imagining a son murdering his own father. That's the significance and the weightiness of what the son did. And again, the tax collectors and sinners may be uncomfortably relating during this time, as are some of you. Verse 14 to 16, it says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, what you have to understand about this particular passage is that this younger son endured massive amounts of humiliation. Number one, he had to come under the servanthood of not a fellow Jewish man, but a non-Jewish man. To to Jewish culture, they were very mm, ethnocentric. They were very like, it's us versus everybody. For him to be in servitude to someone that's not a Jewish culture, first of all, for him to be in, in service is low. But for him to be in servitude to someone who's not of Jewish culture, it, culture is even lower. Not only that, but he gets the worst job that a Jewish person can get. I don't know if you guys know about Jewish culture, but pigs are considered to be the most unclean animals. So when you talk about a, being a pig herder, you got the worst job ever. Okay, pigs are supposed to be the most disgusting, unclean. To me, I would equate that to like roaches. I'm from New York, so we, you know, if you're in the city, there's a lot of, or rats, like if you were like a rat herder. Ew. I, I can't, I, a rat herder, I don't even know what you do with rat, millions of rats, like come rats. <laughs> I don't know what, what this is, but. <laughs> I mean, this was a disgusting job. Like, this was like, I'm trying to equate this to what would be as, a, as disgusting now, but it's really hard to think of. What's the most disgusting job you can think of? Sewage cleaning? Okay. What What was that? Oh, cleaning outhouses. Yeah, that's nasty. That's nasty. I think that's along those lines. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Being the person to clean out the sewage. That's disgusting. That's it, it, But lower than that was herding pigs. Okay. So he went from living this wild lifestyle to hitting what, what Jesus is trying to say in the story. Remember, he's telling a story. So he's trying to make a point. So he's emphasizing specific things. The first thing he's emphasizing is, is the radical, the radical um, disrespect and rebellion of this son. The second thing that he's trying to emphasize here is that this son hit ultimate rock bottom. Like, you can't go lower than this. That's why he chooses this scenario. Hurting pigs. Okay, remember, this is not a true story. So he's being very careful about why he's telling this part of the story. He's fabricating this and with great purpose because to the Jewish tradition and culture, this is rock bottom. He hit the lowest point. He hit so low that this homie was jealous of the pigs and what the pigs get to eat. You go from the unclean animal to what the unclean animal eats and being jealous of that. This is how desperate, how low, how hungry 
this young man became. Humiliation. This is utmost humiliation. He was in a desperate situation. I don't know if you guys ever hit rock bottom, but I've hit a couple of rock bottoms. I mean, I've done some things where I was so humiliated. You know, when you get to this point, you start hating yourself. And it it gets to the point where you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. You don't like what you've done. You don't like what you're a part of. You don't like what you've got involved in. You don't like the person that you've become. When this guy looked at his life, he was disgusted. But he wasn't just disgusted by his circumstance. He was disgusted with himself. We've hit moments in our lives where we feel so disgusted with ourselves. Man, I've done and got involved with such sins that made me feel so terrible, so low. So much shame. I mean, like I said, I stole, but I didn't just steal from stores. I used to just steal from stores, but I got a point where I got so desperate I started stealing from people. That's low. Not that stealing stores is, like, better, but to me, I I was like, you know, all those stores got all that money. They won't miss, you know, a T-shirt or two. I didn't realize that that T-shirt or two is affecting the lives of those people that run those companies, the workers of those companies. But I hit another low. I started stealing from people. I did drugs, but I hit a low where I stopped doing drugs with people. I started doing drugs by myself. And then I hit another low where when I didn't have enough drugs, I, one, of, one of the drugs that I did the most of was marijuana. And marijuana is a type of drug where you smoke. And I got so desperate. I was so desperate and so addicted that when I didn't have any marijuana left, I would scrape. It's called resin. I would scrape the residue of the previous smoked marijuana and, and smoke that. Basically, I would smoke ashes. It's like seeing a cigarette that's already been smoked, drop in the rain with mud, filth, picking it up and smoking again. That's what I was doing. I was that desperate. It wasn't a, it wasn't a good time. I wasn't like, oh, I'm so clever. Look at me, you know, smoking this. Yeah, no, I was like, wow, this is where I'm at? It got this bad? Well, I began to just fiercely lie about my situation, fiercely lie about how bad it was, fiercely lie about the level of my addiction to my friends, to my family. I was hitting rock bottom. It was just ultimate shame. I mean, drugs was one thing. I had people who celebrated the fact that I did drugs, okay? Drugs was one thing, but I think a, a huge part of my shame also came with my struggle with lust. And struggle with pornography, struggle with masturbation, struggle with promiscuity. You know, I I didn't just have boyfriends. Like, I just hooked up. One night stands. You know, the lifestyle that I was living, especially as a woman, it, it wasn't one that was held in high esteem. No one was giving me props. Oh, wow, another notch on your belt. High five. You know, it was more like to the point where I was dating a guy for four years when I was in college, and his, when he would get drunk or when he would come down from a, um, a drug, when he would hit a low, he would call me prostitute or other very derogatory words referring to the fact that I had a very promiscuous past. I stayed with this guy. That's how low I thought of myself. 
it was it was a shameful it, it, on one hand i was trying to be arrogant and women power and you know yay sexuality but deep down i was struggling with major shame major shame and when i really examined my life i wasn't happy i wasn't satisfied i felt very low rock bottom you know when the pharisees heard this part of the story you know what i bet they were saying he deserves it he gets what he deserves. He pretty much kills his father with his actions, his disrespect, his dishonor. He walks out of his father's protection. Of course, he's going to enter a country that's going to be hit with a severe famine. Of course, he's going to end up with the pigs. Of course, he's going to hit rock bottom. He deserves it. And strangely enough, when we find ourselves in those positions, we say the same things over ourselves. Man, I deserve to be here. It's what I get. I struggle with this. I made these decisions. I deserve this. I made the choices. And it's almost like we have this duality where we relate on one hand, but on the other hand, we're just like the Pharisees and the scribes. Man, you deserve it. There was probably no ounce of compassion or sympathy from the Pharisees and the scribes when they were hearing this part. They were just like, well... That's what the word of God says. When you walk out in disobedience, you get cursed. If you read the laws of scripture, that's what it was. When you obey God, you get blessed. When you disobey God, you get cursed. So when they hear this story, they're like, oh, yep, of course. Of course this was bound to happen. Now look, this kid hits such rock bottom, verse 17 to 19. In his utter desperation, the younger son makes up his mind to go to the father. This is low, guys. Remember, he pretty much disconnected from the father. He pretty much said, I want nothing to do with you. You have to hit really low to think you're going to wake your way back. You ever, you know what I'm saying? He knows that he's going to be utterly humiliated to even go back into the sight of his father. In fact, he knows that he, he might even be, he probably will be disowned. That he might be rejected, but he was so desperate. Look at the reason why he goes back. It says in verse 17, but I perish here with hunger. Everybody say hunger. He was so hungry. He was so consumed with hunger that he would go through whatever humiliation he needed to go through to go back to the father. He was that hungry. It was hunger that made him go. It's interesting that they use that word hunger because I think that describes a lot of what I went through when I hit rock bottom. Everything that I indulged in, I thought was for the purpose of satisfaction. That's why we do things the way that we do. Animals in general, we always go towards pleasure, not pain. And so my lifestyle was going towards pleasure. And when I was in the church community, I felt like I was being withheld from certain pleasures. So I left the church in order to pursue certain pleasures, right? And here he's pursued, indulged all of this pleasure, and he comes to the place where nothing has satisfied him. He's left more hungry then than he was even before he left the father's house. So much that he's like, I should go back, because it it's better to be a servant in the father's house, to, to be as hungry, as dissatisfied as I am right now. This is what this young man is feeling, dissatisfaction. He feels like he's 
dying from dissatisfaction. This is interesting because our generation suffers from this. We have so much in this world, so many handy technology, technological, technologic devices. <laughs> we have all sorts of forms of entertainment. Not only do we have TV or movies, we now have 3D. Forget 3D, we now have 4D. You know, we have PC bangs to Nore bangs to game bangs to video bangs to all sorts of rooms of entertainment in Korea. There's so much things that we can do when we're bored, but you know, this generation more than any other generation is dissatisfied. How do I know that? Because the things that we've been pursuing, we've become addicted to. And we need more in order to feel that same satisfaction. They're so dissatisfied. He was so dissatisfied. Disrespectful son. Dishonorable son. Think about it. If your son did that to you, how would you feel? You're as good as dead to me. You know what kind of heartbreak that father had to endure? Now this son gets what he deserves and he has the audacity to think that he can go back. But you see, he's smart. He knows that he doesn't deserve to go back in his father's good graces. So the highest level that he pursues is to be a servant. This is what he says. He practices this speech, right? He goes, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's getting ready to repent. Because he knows he did wrong. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That word servant in the Greek, there's three tiers of servitude in Greek culture. That word that says servant in this passage is the lowest kind of servant. It's a servant that gets hired only for a day and no more. We're not talking about the servants that live in the house or the servants that get certain privileges. We're talking about the lowest level servant. That's the highest he's reaching. Treat me like this lowest level servant. He is desperate. And get this. Everybody say this with me. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Man, this is the deception of this age. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. If the enemy has one accusation that he wants to pound in to each and every single one of you, it's this phrase right here. You're not worthy. You are not worthy. Now watch what happens. Verse 20, this he, this young man, he practices the speech and he arises and he goes to his father. But while he was long way off, his father saw him. Now we're going to pause. The audience is two sets of audience, right? We have the tax collectors and sinners and then we have who? The Pharisees and the scribes. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy. I want you guys to understand that by the time we get to this part of the story, the Pharisees and the scribes think they know how it's going to end. They're like, ah, I know how this is going to end. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 21. 
Okay, this is, we're looking at the book of the laws, right? This is what it says. This is the law of God, okay, Mosaic law. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. That's intense. When the Pharisees and the scribes heard that the son was coming back and that the father saw him, they thought, oh, I know how this story is going to end. The father's going to grab the son. He's going to bring him to the gate of where we live. He's going to tell the elders of the city, this is a rebellious son. And he's going to have all the men in the city gather, pick up stones and stone his son to death. This was law. This was law. This was God's law. Can you imagine? So they were listening to Jesus sharing. They're like, yeah, here it comes. Here it comes. What this guy truly deserves and can you imagine, to their utter shock and, dis- and surprise, the result, the actual story of how it continues? Jesus continues and says, his father saw him and felt compassion. Everybody say felt compassion. And ran and embraced and kissed him. This is insane. This son was supposed to die. That's how bad his transgressions were. That's how serious it was according to scripture. But what does the father do? He runs. You know, what you don't understand is by that culture, by that standard, an elderly man running was considered very shameful. You just don't do that. You lose dignity when you run as a mature man. Okay, men that age, they just walk. But this father, he just he just throws dignity on the floor. He doesn't care. He sees his son from a distance, and he runs towards his son, loses all dignity, embraces his son. The Greek word is more equivalent to tackle. He straight up football tackles his son and kisses the crap out of him. We go from stoning to running, embracing, kissing. At this point, the Pharisees and the scribes are like, what? No, this is not how the story is supposed to go. This is wrong. And Jesus continues because it gets even crazier. He demands that his servants get the best robe, puts a ring on the son's hand, and puts shoes on his feet, and then he orders for the fattened calf to be slaughtered and cooked. All of these symbolize this son being established back into sonship. The robe, your son. The ring, most likely a signet ring, which is a ring with the family name on it. When he disconnected from his father, he disconnected from the family name. And here's this father restoring his son back to his rightful place. He puts the ring with the family name on it. He puts shoes on his feet. All of this symbolizing wealth, sonship, 
that when the servants of the house look at this young man, they say, ah, he's the son of the father, not a servant. Close him in a robe, puts a ring on his finger, puts shoes on his feet, and then he asks for a fattened calf. Now, a fattened calf was considered the form of highest celebration. I'll tell you how high it was. They would use the fattened calf on the Day of Atonement. This is usually when the priest goes in and does sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the whole you know, Jewish people. Like, that's serious business. That's like a serious holiday. It's like on that kind of serious holiday where you, you know, cut the fattened calf and then you serve it for a meal. Like, it was the celebration of celebrations. And this father looks at his son who's thinking to himself, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And he clothes him with a robe and says, you're worthy. Puts a ring on his finger and says, you're worthy. Puts shoes on his feet and says, you are worthy. And calls for the highest celebration and says, you are worthy. And you are my son. This is crazy. Unheard of. The Pharisees at this point are probably shocked disturbed by how this story turned out. This father embraces his son. In fact, when the son gets ready to share his speech, he can only say the first two lines. He repents and confesses he doesn't feel worthy. And just when he's about to ask to be a servant, the father shuts him up and begins to clothe him with value and with honor. We experience shame, but when we turn back to the Lord, his response to us is joy. When we feel unworthy, when we turn back to the Lord, his response is you are valued and you are worthy. When we feel like the best we can be for God is a servant because of all that we've done to disobey him, God goes and says, no, you are my son and nothing can change that. This is where Christianity turns everything for a loop. Scripture says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter of the law was this young man was supposed to be stoned. But the spirit of this law was that the son was always going to be a son. See, when Jesus came, he didn't come to just say the law. He came to fulfill the law. He endured the same humiliation, if not more, than the father endured running to his son. Jesus paid that price of losing his dignity as a son of God to die a cursed death in order for you and I to be clothed in righteousness. This is a powerful story of the gospel message. But watch this. The story doesn't end here. It continues on with the older brother. Now stay with me. Verse 25 to 28. Why don't you guys look with me there? Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. I love this storytelling. You can just picture it, can't you? The son is just walking to the field, and he's hearing music and dancing, confused. And he calls one of the servants and asks what these things mean. What the heck is going on? And the servant says, your brother has come. Remember, the brother that didn't just disown the father, but he disowned his brother. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Watch the older brother's response. He was 
angry and refused to go in. He was angry. You see, the younger brother's response is shame, but the older brother is anger. Which one are you relating to today? Do you get filled with shame or do you get filled with anger? Let's talk about this anger. It gets revealed. What's the source of his anger? Look at verse 28. We'll continue with 28 and 32. His father comes out and and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, interesting wording, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Look how he relates. Why is this young man angry? The answer is in how he relates to his family. First of all, he doesn't say father. He considers himself a servant or a slave. Look at how many years I've served you. In other, trans, um, other translations, it says how many years I've, been, I've slaved for you. He wasn't looking at his dad like father. He was looking at his father like a slave master. And then look how he relates to his brother. He doesn't say brother. He says, this son of yours. Why is this young man so angry? It's because he's completely disconnected to the family. And it's more relevant or evident because his idea of a celebration is not feasting with a goat with his family, but with his friends. Why won't you give me a young goat where I can celebrate with my friends? Interesting, huh? Not where I can celebrate with my family. It's like, no, forget the family. I don't have family where I can celebrate with my friends. My friends are my family. This older brother stayed in the house. He's supposed to be the good one, guys. He did everything his father told him to do, but his mentality was no different than the younger brother. He never saw his father as a father, but considered him a slave master. He was always a servant in his own eyes. His brother, the son of yours. When you begin to disconnect from the family of God, when you don't understand that God's not your slave driver, he's your father that loves you unconditionally, when you separate from that, and you see someone else getting promoted or celebrated or someone having their life transformed, all you experience is comparison, jealousy, and you can't enter into the celebration. Have you guys ever struggled with jealousy before? Have you ever struggled with comparing? Some of you guys don't have my story. You didn't do drugs. You weren't promiscuous. But some of you struggle like the older brother did. And you did what you were supposed to do, but you still felt like a slave. You still feel like God will only give you what you deserve in comparison to your work. This is the problem of both the younger son and the older son, but they manifested it completely different. The younger son made mistakes. He said, I'm unworthy. The older son said, I did everything right, so I'm worthy. I'm entitled. Where is it? They both thought that the father's love was based on work. And they were both completely wrong. Look how the father responds to the older brother. Look at the wording. He says, starting from verse 31, 
son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father uses the two family connective words. He says, son, not slave, not servant. He said, son, because he needed the older brother to understand that I'm your father and you are my son. And I love you not because of what you do for me, but because of who you are. And the second connection he makes is with his brother. He doesn't say this son of mine. He says, your brother. What the father does in response is he connects. He invites his older son to connect back with family. It's interesting. We don't know the older son's response. Jesus doesn't go so far to tell that this older son says, Oh, I'm a son, and runs back to celebrate. The reason being is because the older son represents who? The Pharisee and the scribes. And the prodigal son represents who? The tax collector and the sinners. Remember I told you you have to keep things into context. He was talking to two audiences. One that felt unworthy and ashamed. And he was saying, draw near to me. Because when you come to the father, he will receive you with joy. And the other audience, he was speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes like the older brother. And saying, listen, you don't get what you deserve. Your righteousness does not come from your works. It comes through sonship. And I'm giving you an invitation to celebrate what I'm doing here. The reason why it was an open-ended story, we don't know what the older son did, is because this whole story was designed to speak to the Pharisees and the scribes. And as much as we can relate to the younger brother, can't we relate to the older brother too? Man. God, I've done ministry for all these years. I told you that I would do what you say, and I've done it. I've submitted under this leader through their weaknesses and their faults. Rona's driving me crazy, but I still do what she says. I still come out to every large group, even though sometimes the messages suck. But I'm still here, God. Look at me. I'm obedient. And you see your brothers and your sisters just thriving. And you're filled with anger and jealousy. Unable to celebrate. I believe God wants to deliver us out of both mindsets. The younger brother and the older brother. Now, some of you guys may relate to one more than the other. But I think a lot of us can relate to both. Remember I talked about the story and having to figure out the emphasis? The younger brother manifested shame. The older brother, anger. The father's response for the younger brother was joy. And the father's response to the older brother was, all that I have is yours. This parable, this story, was a story about grace. And that word grace and the substance of grace is radical. Like I said, this story was supposed to end in a stoning. Somebody was supposed to die. Somebody was supposed to die. And you know what? Somebody did die. But it wasn't the son 
or this son, but it was the son of God. Jesus himself, the storyteller, the one sharing this story, who's talking about the invitation back into the father's love. He's the one that dies a shameful, humiliating, losing all sorts of dignity sort of way. The most cursed death, he dies so that we can be established back into sonship. But it starts with this repentance. The younger brother was able to say some of his speech, not all, but some. He said the most important part, Father, I've sinned against you. There is a reason why Jesus let that part of the speech remain. He didn't shut the mouth of the son and, and say, no, 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 don't say anything at all. Shh. No, he let him say what he needed to say. I've sinned against you. And then he gave him the great grace of forgiveness. This is what the father's love is all about, guys. We still have a role to play. But when we repent, no matter how dirty, no matter how disgusting, no matter how horrible and despicable some of the things we've been involved in have been, when we choose to return back to the Father, we confess that we've sinned against him, his response is not to make you a servant, but to clothe you and to establish you back into sonship. It's not what you earn. It's not about what you do. It's not about your work. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about your you know, amazing decision making. It's not about how holy you think you are. This is about the grace of God. This is what Jesus came to do reveal the father's love that was his one sole purpose before jesus came they didn't even call god father they called him yahweh in fact they wouldn't even say his name because it was that revered and holy but when jesus came to earth he introduced god as father and this was a revolutionary um you know theology he said pray like this our father who art in heaven for the jewish people to hear that it was what no How can we, such an unholy people, can even consider God, the Almighty, Yahweh, the name who we can't even speak, our Father? It was Jesus that came to connect. So what are you dealing with today? Shame? Anger? Frustration? Comparison? Entitlement? Whatever it is, I'm telling you, repent and you will experience God's joy. And may you be reminded of his love and his sonship that never changed. I want you guys to close your eyes.